It's really good to see everybody here. Thanks for being here today. And uh, if you're joining us online, thanks for joining online. Um, We started a series last week called Prove It. And the whole idea of this series is that we want to know that we can prove what we believe by our actions, right? We, we should, the world should be able to tell that, hey, he's a Christian, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, by the way that we act. So we're asking you to prove that you're a Christian. Not necessarily that you've you got to prove it to me, right? You don't have to prove anything to me. But, but to the rest of the world, that you can prove that you're a Christian, not necessarily because of what you say, but because of how you act. And, and let's just get started with this and ask the question, how do you know if someone is a real Christian or not? I mean, is it just the fish sticker on, on the back of their car? Is it the Bible on their desk at work? Is it, you know, that they don't use bad words or that they, they go to church a lot? You know, the problem is, is that there are a lot of people that don't swear. And there are a lot of people that go to church. Are they all Christians? I mean, seriously, that's a question we should, we should ask. Jesus said that people will know that we are his disciples by our love. But again, lots of people love, right? Lots of people love, so, so are they all Christians? We, we could say that a real Christian is someone who's accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that sounds pretty definitive, doesn't it? But is that all that it takes? I mean, is, is that all that it, there is to being a Christian? You know, say a prayer or get baptized or come to church. Is, is that really all there is to it? I, I heard a, about a t-shirt that you could buy that says, and they'll know we're Christians by our dot, dot, dot t-shirts. That's kind of our mentality a lot of times, isn't it? That, you know, um, you can, in certain parts of the South, not so much in Kentucky, but you go a little bit further south, you can identify uh, just about everybody's favorite NASCAR driver by the t-shirts they wear and the hats they wear, right? That's kind of the same thing for Christians, is that you'll, you'll know us uh, that we're Christians by the t-shirts that we wear. Three out of four of Americans a few years ago in, in the, the 90s and in, in early 2000s, three out of four Americans described themselves as Christians. So how do you know if someone really is a Christian? That's 75% of the American population. Now, if I were just to ask you to raise your hand, do you think 75% of the American population is Christian? Probably wouldn't be a whole lot of hands go up, would it? So how do we know who's really a Christian? How do you know if you're really a Christian? Last week, again, we started this series from the book of 1 John where we're asking you to prove that you are a Christian, for you to prove that you believe what you believe. And today we're simply asking, is there something more distinctive about being a real Christian? Is there something deeper uh, than, than all of the things, the, the peripheral things that we kind of think of? And that's exactly the question that John is addressing in his letter, 1 John. Remember that he's writing about 50 years after uh, Jesus has lived and died and left the earth. So his readers, the, the, his um, original audience, they're two to three generations now removed from the historical Jesus, from the actual physical Jesus that walked and talked, that did miracles, that did all of the stuff that people saw, that you know they ate with him, they, they touched him, all of those kind of things. They're two to three generations now removed from that. So these people, they didn't know the historical Jesus. They didn't meet him because they weren't alive yet. And so, so John is writing this because these people are now, they're starting to question their faith. And they're not experiencing that fullness of life that John talks about. So they're wondering, how do you know if someone is a real Christian? How do you know if you're a real Christian? In, in this letter, John proposes three tests that reveal whether or not a person truly is a Christian. There's three tests. There's the doctrinal test. That's, you know, hey, what do you believe? There's the ethical test. That's how do you live? 
And then there's the relational test. Who do you love? And this entire letter is organized around those three tests. Remember last week we said this is a pretty simple letter. It's pretty straightforward. You know, in other New Testament letters, uh, Paul specifically, he, he'll cover a broad range of topics. He, he covers a lot of ground. But John, in this letter, he chooses to focus just on these three. And he takes a pretty interesting approach uh, when you think about it, uh, how, he, how he writes this. He takes a, a cyclical approach. Instead of going through one, two, three, four, five, you know, or, or one, two, three, and then, you know, finish this one and then move on to the next one. He takes a cyclical approach. He says something about each one of these, and then he comes back later and says something more about it. And then he comes back again a little bit later, and he kind of drills down even a little bit more into these topics. Let me, let me show you how it works here, um, because this first topic that he introduces us to, it's the ethical test. It's the how-do-you-live test. And let's just follow John's reasoning as he takes us deeper in our understanding of what it means to be a real Christian. This is what he says, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7. He says, This is the message that we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. You know, one of the things that I hear often as a minister is from people is, you know, hey, I want to go deeper in my faith. How do I go deeper in my faith? I, w- I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. I always want to go deeper. But here's the, here's the thing. Everybody has a slightly different idea of what deeper in their faith means. For, for some people, deeper means, you know, a... a a more knowledge of the Bible. So, so they're looking for you know, meaty sermons and, and expository sermons and, and cross-references and sermons with lots of Greek words in the background on, uh, and on all of those things. They're, they're hoping that the next series is going to be a verse-by-verse through the book of Leviticus and, or, or something like that, or it's going to unlock all the mysteries of Revelation. Right? That's, that's, that's deep for some people. For some people, going deeper just means... You know, deeper experiences with Christ. They're looking for greater intimacy with God and, and fullness of the Holy Spirit. They're looking for chills to, to run up and down their spine in worship. To others, still, it means going deeper in, in our practice of, of spiritual disciplines. It means, you know, more prayer, more reflection, more fasting. They want more spiritual experiences, more soul care. You know, and here's the thing deeper knowledge, deeper intimacy, deeper practice. Those are all good things, right? Nobody that's a Christian would say that any of those things are a bad thing. In fact, we should probably all strive to be a little deeper in all of those things. Real Christians are serious about that kind of stuff, aren't they? But John, John doesn't start with any of those things, does he? The first thing that John says in this passage is, this, is you want to go deeper? Then stop sinning. Stop sinning, quit it, right? That's what he says. If you want to go deeper, stop sinning. That's not exactly what we're hoping to hear, is it? Because there's nothing uh, new about that. There's nothing uh, maybe that uh, kind of pumps us up about that. There's nothing new and exciting about not sinning, but that's where he begins. He says, if you call yourself a Christian, then, then start living like one, which was our big idea from the message last week. If you, if you believe in Jesus, then act like it, right? He begins with this declaration in verse 5. He says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Now, there's nothing new about that statement that John makes. There's nothing new. It would have been very familiar to his Jewish readers. Light was used throughout the the Old Testament Scriptures to to speak of the holiness of God. But it would have also been familiar to his Greek readers, um, philosophers, philosophers, 
often used light as an expression to, to talk about uh, a search for a, a higher truth or a spiritual enlightening or spiritual discovery. And as we mentioned last week, some, uh, apparently there were some false teachers who were beginning to, to invade the church, this first century church during this time. And, and they were offering people uh, some, some spiritual enlightenment through secret knowledge and mystical experiences. They, they were saying that basically that, that one didn't have anything to do with the other, that, that spirit didn't have anything to do with body. Now, the, you might know this, you might not know it, but that heresy eventually was known as Gnosticism. It's literally comes from the Greek word to know. Gnosticism became a, a real problem in the early church as believers went off in search of these deep spiritual experiences and, and these deeper truths. And many of them, unfortunately, came to believe that the only thing that mattered was spiritual. That material things weren't important. They were all passing away. You know, your body is just passing away, so it didn't matter. Only the spirit was eternal. And so they reasoned it didn't matter what they did with their physical bodies. As long as they were pursuing these spiritual truths, these spiritual experiences, then, then promiscuity and, and drunkenness and gluttony, those things that they did with their physical body, it didn't really matter. At least that's what they thought. They thought there was no harm in, in indulging in them. You know, you don't often hear the word Gnosticism in today's world. In fact, outside of church and Bible college, I don't think I've ever heard the word Gnosticism. But that kind of thinking, it's still around. And it's still, it's still prevalent in our culture, the, this, this splitting off of our spiritual selves from our physical selves. And it still finds its way into the church today. In, in 2010, in an issue of Christianity Today, there's a story called Hipster Faith. The, the subheading, it, which I really like, is what happens when cool meets Christ. Right, that, that's the article. The article explores a movement among younger evangelicals who want to shed the trappings uh, of mainstream baby boomer Christianity. You know, all the bumper stickers and the mega churches, the right wing politics. The, um, they want a more gritty, relevant, justice oriented faith. And so they would meet in nightclubs and they cuss in the pulpit and they cancel services once a month to go serve the poor. You know, on the one hand, there's something appealing about that. These, these hipster churches that, that are exposing the shallowness of their, uh, and hypocrisy of their parents' generation who built bigger homes and better churches all while neglecting the poor and trashing the environment and turning the gospel into a commodity for, for a certain class of people. At the same time, though, there's something disturbing about it. This new breed of Christians who seem to think that as long as they're doing social justice and unplugged Christian worship, uh, things like drinking and swearing and sexual ex experimentation, those things aren't really a big deal. I think John would have a problem with, with both boomer Christianity and hipster Christianity. Because we can't separate spiritual from the material. You, you can't separate them. You can't separate, another way to say it is, you, you can't separate belief from behavior. Living in the light is as much about sexual purity as it is about social justice. It's, it's, just, it's about what we do with our bodies, not just what we do for our souls. And so John takes this word light that would mean so much to his readers. And it turns it back on them. And he reminds them that light isn't just about knowledge. It's about conduct. That, that God isn't light because he's spiritual. He's light because he's holy. And his people, if they really want to be deeper, if they want to go deeper, then they should be holy too. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not live by the truth. That phrase, do not live by the truth, it could literally be translated, do not do the truth. 
do not do the truth. But the, the translators, they thought that would sound awkward, so they, they, they translated it this way. Because, but John is writing, basically saying, hey, you got to do truth. And, and think about this. It's not just enough to know truth, right? It's not just en- enough to know that, but you have to do truth. Truth is something that we do. For example, if we know the truth uh, about seatbelts, that, seat, that wearing your seatbelt will save lives, well, it's not just enough to simply know that, is it? What do you have to do? You have to actually put the seatbelt on, right? You have to actually wear it. In, in the same way, if we know that if every person is created in the image of God, if we believe that to be the truth, then we'll treat every person, every person with dignity and respect, regardless of race or religion or class or sexual orientation or political affiliation. If it's true that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, then we'll keep them healthy and pure so that, so that the Holy Spirit can be at home in our bodies. If it's true that everything that we have belongs to the Lord, then we'll be good stewards of it, right? We'll give generously and, and we'll spend wisely. According to John, real Christians don't just believe their faith, they do their faith. And so John introduces us to this ethical test early in the letter, and then he moves on to some more topics. But in chapter 2, he comes back, back to it again, and he drills down a little deeper. Let, let's, read, let's skip ahead a, a, a few verses and jump to chapter 2. Verses 3 through 6, this is what John writes. He says, We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. He's back to this uh, o- obeying thing, right? This do, do what He says. He says, The one who says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But if anybody obeys His word, God's love is truly made complete in Him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Notice how John uses words like know and truth. Those are words that we we often associate with going deeper. But notice what John does with them. He turns them into behaviors. If you want to know if somebody's a real Christian, John says don't just ask them what they believe. Instead, look at how they live their life. In fact, John says if someone claims to be a Christian but they don't do what Christ says, then they're a liar. Liar, that's a pretty serious accusation. I mean, we don't let our kids walk around calling other people liars, do we? In fact, we, we tell them, we scold them for that, right? And think about this, if you're in an argument as an adult and, and you're kind of going back and forth and somebody says, well, that's not what I said, what do you always say? I say, well, you're calling me a liar? Uh, that's a serious accusation, right? To, to call somebody a liar is serious, but, but John is saying that this is such a serious accusation that if you say you, you believe in Christ but you don't act like it, then you're a liar, Unfortunately, a lot of contemporary Christians aren't making that connection. Back in 2007, there was a Barna poll taken that was comparing the the behavior of so-called born-again Christians with with regular people, with the rest of the population. These were people who had said that they had accepted Jesus as their their Lord and Savior. They believed that the Bible was God's Word, so, so they believed those two things, those kind of two fundamental principles. And this is what the survey revealed. They found that in a 30-day period, these self-identified Christians were nearly as likely as anybody else to gamble, to visit a pornographic website, to take something that didn't belong to them, to physically fight or abuse someone, to drink too much, to use an illegal drug, to have said something that wasn't true, to have gotten back at somebody for something that they, that they did, and to have said mean things about somebody behind their back. That's pretty stark, isn't it? Now, personally, I'm going to tell you, I don't think that the reality of the situation is as bad as that particular survey might suggest. But clearly, there is a gap between the belief and the behavior of many people who call themselves Christians. 
John would have a problem with that. In fact, down in verse 6, he says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. That word walk, it, it was in the original language, it was often used to describe how someone lived their daily life. And, and so John seems to be saying that a person's walk should match their talk. If, if they talk about Jesus on Sunday, then they should live like him on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. But what does that mean? How does a 21st century American Christian walk as Jesus walked? How many of you remember those WWJD bracelets that people used to wear? Anybody still wearing them? See, God's saying, Adam, it's about time to wrap this up, isn't it? Yeah. The WWJD bracelets said, uh, you know, they stood for what would Jesus do? That's not a bad question to ask yourself, is it? It's not a bad question. Problem is, is it's not very practical. It's not very practical because if if we're asking ourselves, what would Jesus do? Is John saying, well, then we should just, you know, leave our homes and get rid of all of our possessions and walk along the countryside and and preach sermons and cast out demons? Is Is that what we're being called to do? The better question Dallas Willard from Dallas Theological Seminary says is, what would Jesus do if he were me? But that's too long to fit on a bracelet, so we don't ask it. But it's much more helpful. What would Jesus do if he were me? Think about it this way. Think if you're, you're a truck driver. Ask yourself, if Jesus were a truck driver, what kind of truck driver would he be? Would he obey the, the rules of the road? Would he keep his rig in, in a safe operating condition? Would he stop to help other drivers? You know, would, he, would he toot his horn when uh, the little kids did the, the, the motion like that you know, as they're going by? Would, would Jesus do that? What kind of truck driver would he be? If Jesus were in middle management, what kind of middle manager would he be? You know, would he talk behind the boss's back? Or would he make unreasonable demands of his people in his department? Would he do the bare minimum or pad his expense account? What kind of middle management would Jesus be? If Jesus were a parent, what kind of parent would he be? You know, which, which TV shows and video games would he allow? Would, how attentive to the health of his kids would he be? How often would he pay attention to their homework and to their friends and, and that kind of stuff? How often would he, would he read with them and pray with them? And would he ever threaten to throw them out of the back seat of the car if they didn't stop fighting in the back seat, right? You've been there. What kind of parent would Jesus be? If Jesus were a high schooler, what kind of high schooler would he be? You know, how would he treat kids? especially the kids on the social fringe, the left-out kids. How hard would he study? How hard would he practice? What parties would he go to? Which conversations would he just walk away from? I think you kind of get the idea. Think about your daily life. How would Jesus live it if he were you? See, being a Christian isn't just a matter of believing in, in what Jesus said. It's a matter of living like Jesus lived. Now, it's certainly true that, that knowing and doing go together. You can't know how Jesus would live your life if you don't know how he lived his life. And so you're going to want to study the scripture and you're going to want to spend more time in prayer. But if studying and praying never makes a difference in in your living, then you really haven't gotten very far, have you? You haven't gone very deep. And so once again, John leaves the subject of lifestyle and, and moves on to a couple other topics as you read through his letter. But then he comes back to it again, and this time with a vengeance. Let's follow John as he drills down for a third time, and then we'll try and put it all together and wrap things up. Uh, Go to chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. This is what John says. He says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. But he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. 
Well, John has drawn some really stark lines in this letter, isn't he? He's, he's drawn some very distinct lines in the sand. He says you're either in the light or you're in the dark. You're, you're either living in the truth or you're living a lie. You, you're either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. And at least one of the tests John says is it's ethical. It's how you live. Not just on Sunday, but every day. And notice this, what John is saying. Notice that he's saying that the real Christian never sins. He's not saying that. He says he cannot go on sinning. He's talking about habitual behavior, uh, not the occasional lapse. John, John's not expecting perfection, but he is expecting progress. As we go on with God, as we go deeper in our faith, it, it will show up eventually in our behavior. Not just in our belief, but in our behavior. We, we won't just take notes on Sunday, but we'll live differently on Monday. We won't just you know, bask in God's presence when we get up and do our morning devotions, but we'll do the right thing at work in the afternoon. And so all, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is that our walk has to match our talk. That our talk has to match our walk. That they have to be one and the same. They have to go together. Here, here's what I'd like to do. I'd, I'd like to just illustrate something with you with a simple little drawing. And I'm not a, a sketch artist by any means. I struggle with uh, stick people and, and I, I, I have poor penmanship. So, so I've, I wanted to do just kind of like a little flip chart here. And in this, I, I, I wrote small enough so that, try to write big enough so that you could see it, but also small enough that you can't see how bad the handwriting is. And, and here's what I think. I think as we talk about somebody becoming a Christian, and as they, they're, they're just kind of on a line, on a continuum. And here's, on one end, we would say that there are people who have no faith in Jesus at all, that don't, don't know God, that aren't Christians, and we would say they, they know God, they, they have no God. And on the other end, we're the people that have the fully formed faith would be the people who know God, right? K-N-O-W. And at some point, we, we want people to move from this part of the line to this part of the line, right? That's the goal. We want everybody to be moving across. So, so we get people to, to grow in their faith and study their Bible and, and, and to attend worship. But it's primarily a doctrinal, a, a doctrinal journey. And at some point, these, we, the goal is to get people who don't have a God, who know God, right? To move to people who are knowing God. And they had, somewhere right in the middle, you, you won't be able to see that, but is a, a crossing point where they, they become a Christian. They, now, they, they, they know God, they're, they're believers, but look, they still have a long ways to go, don't they? They're, they're not here yet. This is, this is the goal. This is where we want people. They're not here yet. Maybe it'll be easier if I do this so you can see this. They have a long way to go. But this is primarily a, a, a doctrinal journey. It's about knowing God, right? It's about, it's about what you believe. It's about studying, studying the Scriptures and reading God's Word and, and attending church. But, but John, according to John, there's another axis that we, would, that we have to put on this line. If, if this is a doctrinal axis, then we need a horizontal axis that would be, um, that would be an ethical axis. And so... So at one end of this axis, we would put sinful, the people that don't know God. It's sinful, right? But up here is holy. This is people who, who are knowing God. And so if we're moving people along this axis, we also have to be moving people along this axis. It's not just one way or the other, right? It's, it's, You've you got to go from knowing God to knowing God, but you also got to be moving from sinful to holy. And, and, and so think about this. How do we know where we're at in this quadrants, in these quadrants? How do we know where people are? Jesus said this, he said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, the law says do not commit adultery. 
So we could put adultery down here, right? We would say that's sinful behavior. We could put it down here. Um, so, so we know that's sinful. But then he, he says it's, it's not just that easy. There's, there's an ethical line. And, and so he says, if you have looked at a woman lustfully in your heart, then you've already committed adultery. So if this line represents sexual ethics, then, then we've got a ways to go here. So, so we could say an a, habitual adulterer, who's someone who cheats on their spouse, we could put that down here. But then maybe there's, there's you know, fornication. You know, you, you were intimate before marriage, and you, so you could maybe, you know, maybe move that line up here. And, and maybe you're, you're looking at pornography, and so maybe we put that right here. And look, I'm not ranking sin, okay? That's not, this is just for illustrative purposes. This is not just to say, okay, well, this sin is bigger than this sin or what. But, but the point is, eventually there's got to be a progression to holy living, right? Eventually we've got to stop our habitual sinning and move toward holiness. We've got to move up the ethical axis. We've got we've to eventually make, make our actions match our, our, our vocabulary. We've got to go from, from no God to knowing God and from sinful to holy. And look, this, this is, it's hard to tell when somebody crosses into Christian behavior, right? We would say that, that this is not Christian behavior. That this is Christian behavior, right? But, but eventually, we want people to move in this direction. There's got to be progress. And, and here's the thing about this. Where are you at? What quadrant are you in? I mean, obviously, we would say, if you know God and you're holy living, then you would be in this quadrant. That's, that's a real Christian, right? And we would say that those who aren't Christians would be down here in this Christian. You know, sin, there's nothing about their behavior. There's nothing about their beliefs that make you believe they're a Christian. So we, we could put them there. But what do you do with these two quadrants? People who, who don't believe in God, but they act like Christians. Are they Christians? Are they Christians? I mean, we would probably say no, but I mean, at the very least, we put a question mark here, right? So, so what do we do with them? And what about these people who say that they believe in God, but their actions tell you, completely the opposite. What do you do with them? Are they Christians? I mean, if we're going to be consistent, we at least, at the very least, put a question mark here for them. So what are we, where are you at? And look, the purpose of these quadrants isn't, is for self-evaluation. It's not to be judging where somebody else is at, because John didn't write his letter so that we would judge others based on, on their actions and their beliefs. He wrote it so that we would be self-reflective and so we would begin to make our actions and our behaviors match up. And obviously, this is where we want to be. And, it's, and I'll tell you, it's not even so much a matter of where you're at in this quadrant, just that you're in the quadrant, right? That you're just here, that you're, you're, you're moving toward knowing God and you're moving toward being holy. Obviously, this is where we, want, we would want you to be, right? At, at the top of both. But, but it's more important that you're moving just in this direction, that it's an upward progression. we got to be moving up and to the right if we want to be real Christians, if we want to continue to, to grow and, and to prove our faith. And I don't know about you, but, but I find this kind of diagram helpful for me. It, it may not be very helpful, helpful for you because I don't know how well you can see it out there, but, but it's helpful for me because it reminds me that as a Christian, that I've got work to do in not just knowing God, but also in holy behavior, in, in, in living out what I say that I believe. And it reminds me as a pastor that taking people deeper isn't just about information. It isn't about just moving along this axis, but it's about transformation. It's about moving along this axis just as much. But I, I want to throw a couple of cautions out here about this. 
First is that only God knows where a person is on this grid, okay? Only God knows. You cannot capture the mystery of salvation on, on a flip chart. Only God knows when a person has crossed from here to here and from here to here, all right? Only God knows that. We can't judge that. Second, again, this is a testament to evaluate yourself, not everybody else. John didn't write this letter so that we would point fingers, but he wrote it so that we would know how we're supposed to act, so that we could experience a deeper walk with Christ. And that's John's big idea for this week, that you know you're living deeper, you're proving it when your belief and your behavior are taking you closer to Christ. When you're moving up and to the right, then you're, you're, you're proving it. You're, you're moving in the right direction. You're going deeper, so to speak. And so as we wrap up this morning, here, here's what I'd like for you to consider. I, I'd like for you to consider where you might put yourself on this quadrant. I mean, are you, are you over here where you're not sure about your beliefs, but your behavior's pretty good? Are you down here where you, where you don't believe anything about God and your behavior doesn't act or reflect that? Or your behavior does reflect that, I should say? Are you here where, and, and honestly, I'm going to tell you, this is where I think I find a lot of Christians in this quadrant right here. Where, where we know God, and we know what God expects, but our behavior doesn't always match up with it. And the goal is to get us from moving here to here. To be moving along this axis where we know God and we know what God wants, but we also know what God expects and, and our behavior is matching that. So here's what I want you to do this morning. Just take a moment to reflect. Think about where you're at in this quadrant and what it will take for you to move along this quadrant, along this axis, and also this axis. What would it take to get you from going here to here or from here to here? Maybe even from here to here. What would it take? Because here's what I'm convinced of. That when our walk matches our talk, that we will experience life in the, in the fullness that Jesus has for us. But also, so will those around us. That when our walk matches our talk, the rest of the world will take notice. I mean, they, they have for centuries. For centuries, the rest of the world has noticed when Christians acted differently than they did. That's why they wrote in the book of Acts that the apostles, they turned the world upside down. They turned the world upside down, not because of their powerful words, although that was part of it, but because their behavior was so radically different than the way the rest of the world lived. What would it look like if our behavior matched our words? If our, if our walk matched our talk? I think it's possible but only with the help of Jesus and only if we're willing to go deeper and experience him in a, in a way that we've never experienced him before. Let me pray for us.